From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. And, of course, there's this that we have to talk about right off the top because it's one of those stories that makes you scratch your head and say, again, 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 you know, it just doesn't go away. Talking about trucks hitting overpasses, especially in the lower mainland, what's it going to take to stop this? At about this time yesterday, 112th Street overpass, Highway 99, another truck hit an overpass. And, you know, the company behind this one, Chohan Freight Forwarders, uh, has been involved in other instances in the past. Their entire fleet now grounded and an investigation is underway into what caused this one situation to happen again. But let's bring in some different perspectives on this. Uh, let's go to Delta City Councillor Dylan Kruger. Dylan, thanks for joining us to talk about this. You describe it as Groundhog Day, and uh, yeah, it is. I, I hope I don't have to repeat this again. But um, what's going on? How do you feel? How can we stop this? Yeah, Bruce, uh, thanks for having me. But it, it it really does feel like the movie Groundhog Day. It feels like the same thing happens over and over and over again. And, you know, every single time a truck hits this overpass, uh, there are significant local impacts. We have residents living on one side of a highway that are completely cut off from the rest of their community. Uh, we have businesses that have to uh, close down. It's actually cheaper for these businesses uh, the last time this happened to close down until repairs are completed rather than to face the uh, the loss in revenue. So there's significant local economic impacts, not to mention the fact that the companies that are responsible here uh, are frankly getting away with a $575 fine for uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars of, uh, of damage to provincial infrastructure. So it's uh, it's pretty frustrating. You can't really measure that impact, can you? I mean, you'll hear stories, you think of all the cars that are blocked, every one of those cars or trucks that was caught in traffic yesterday has a story of how this inconvenienced them or caused them to lose money. But how do you even measure the actual impact? It's tough, but just anecdotally, the stories that I hear, I mean, uh, A, the commuters, uh, who are on the front lines of it. Uh, and it just from the last time this happened on Highway 17A, you get the initial impact when the, the overpass and the entire highway is closed down for hours, if not uh, days at a time, as they assess the damage. Then there's the months of partial closures and in some cases full closures while that repair uh, takes place. Uh, meanwhile, people's lives, their ability to, to get from A to B, their ability to get to work, their ability to get home uh, is completely put in uh, in limbo. And like I said, in my community in Delta, Highway 99 bifurcates. It divides the whole community uh, in half. So you get half the community uh, basically unable to access the other uh, without a 35-minute, a 40-minute uh, delay going through the George Massey Tunnel. Uh, we had residents last time on the other side of the highway that couldn't make it to doctor's appointments, couldn't make it to Delta Hospital, couldn't go uh, to the grocery store to get their essential services without a 45-minute uh, drive through the tunnel. So the, the impact, the human impact of these collisions is real. We see Mayor George Harvey uh, expressing his discontent on social media. And as a council, I understand that you've got to be really upset about this happening. But what can you do and uh, what can Delta say to encourage some sort of change, if anything? 
Yeah, and the council is united behind uh, Mayor Harvey, who sent a letter to, to Minister Fleming, and, and we're asking for, for two things, Bruce. The first is we appreciate that the province has recently increased the fines, but we need to see even stiffer penalties. The reality is that $575 tickets, that's just the cost of doing business for some folks. That is not a punitive fine. It is a higher ticket price uh, if a truck is caught without chains on a mandatory chain section of highway uh, at $598. Uh, than it is if you obliterate an overpass. So that needs legislative changes. We're calling for that. The second thing that we're calling for is there's a number of overpasses on major trade routes in this province that still continue to be under modern standards. The overpasses uh, on Highway 99, many of them are uh, 50, 60 years old. They they, uh, are from the era of the construction of the highway itself. We're building new overpasses to a higher standard. We need to look at infrastructure funding uh, to actually bring these uh, overpasses up in height. If this is going to keep happening, um, we need to put some money behind these solutions. Highway 99 is a national trade corridor. It connects Canada to the Blaine-U.S. border crossing, uh, to Tawasin Ferry Terminal, to Delta Port, the largest container port terminal in North America. And frankly, when the entire highway is shut down because a truck runs into an overpass, it's an embarrassment. It is an embarrassment. The other thing, talking about the ministry and some of the things that have been done or can be done, we got uh, word that an owner of one of the trucking companies that serves the interior of our province said, you know what, oversized loads, they have to be approved by the ministry. Okay, that means the minister uh, has some culpability in this. And some truckers are waiting for hours for that approval. They don't want uh, have to wait that long in Alberta, uh, and he can al- almost understand why some truckers uh, just get frustrated and move on. What about that? Yeah, I, well, you know, certainly ministry approval times is one thing, but you know, let's be clear: it is at the end of the day the responsibility of the driver and the company that they work for to ensure that the load they're carrying is going to meet the height restrictions of the route they're traveling. They have to measure their load, and if it's an oversized load, they're required by provincial legislation to take uh, an oversized truck route. So every time that one of these accidents happens, uh, it is completely avoidable negligence. Dylan Kruger, thanks so much for your time and all the best to you and the rest of the council and the mayor in Delta because we know that this may happen again. Dylan, thank you. Bruce, thanks and Happy New Year. Happy Friday afternoon. Bruce Claggett in for Jill Bennett. Hey, if you were a driver caught in this yesterday, you are not alone in your misery. 2023 coming to an end with another large truck, a semi hitting an overpass, this time in Delta. And it was the 112th Street overpass over Highway 99. And it begs the obvious question, what can be done, if anything? Oh, there's got to be something that can be done. And enforcement, of course, is a big part of it. Just one part of it, but a big part of it. Let's bring in Acting Inspector James Sandberg with Delta Police to talk a little bit more about what Delta can do in this whole equation. Uh, Inspector, thanks so much for joining us and happy Friday and happy new year ahead. What's going on here? Good afternoon, Bruce, and and, uh, happy new year to you as well. Um, You know, first of all, what I'll say is you can probably hear a little bit of frustration in my voice and uh, I wasn't caught in the traffic uh, snarl yesterday. So for those that were uh, recognized that we, uh, we understand the frustration, the inconvenience, the expense when we see these collisions. Um, <clears throat> the first thing I'd like to, to mention is 
there's two things that need focus here moving forward when we're dealing with uh, the repair for these these overpasses. The first is the immediate uh, traffic management plan, what we are going to be doing uh, to help minimize the disruptions in the area. That helps uh, both uh, the commuters and the residents. Um, and then how we share that information so that uh, it's available in a timely way and people can react to it uh, and build their plans accordingly. Well, that's outside so, of enforcement, uh, and I, I like to hear that because you know best. You know what's happening and going on and planning well. Well, and the planning, uh, you know, it, it it's it's complex. If, if we change it to the previous overpass strike, the one at Highway 17A, the, the repairs are just now set to begin in the coming weeks, and that was how many months ago, and how much uh, time and effort and inconvenience that that has had on on people in the area. Uh, yeah, go ahead. I don't want to make any excuses for the truckers involved in this, but you mentioned the previous one on Highway 17A there, and I think that when you have problems and then construction coming in, that puts increased pressure on the drivers, increased pressure and the need to still make money and to get a load moving is going to cause or be more uh, more inclined to cause stupidity. Don't you think that's an issue? Um, you know, I, w- I would say, I w- before I say stupidity, what I would say is uh, time is money and money encourages uh, corner cutting. Um, so taking advantages of little things to improve the bottom line is probably more so uh, a focus that I would have. But let's talk about the the enforcement piece for a minute yes. here in that um, we have uh, uh, the benefit of, of Delta's Chief Neil DeBoard uh, being the chair of the British Columbia Association of Chiefs of Police Traffic Safety Committee. Now, that's a mouthful. What that is, it's, it's, a, it's a committee set up inside the DCACP, and they will work with our partners from the province uh, on different traffic safety initiatives. So in this case, uh, just speaking with Chief DuBord this morning, uh, he's prepared to table a motion at the next meeting, the overpass strike collisions, and requesting one of the things that you've, uh, and Dylan uh, Kruger has just mentioned, was an increase in penalties for consideration. So recognizing that the penalty is, is minimal, especially when you compare it to the damage, uh, that's one of the things that uh, that we can do in terms of uh, of managing. Our but inspector, with all due respect, that's already happened two weeks ago. They brought in legislation uh, to make things a little bit more strict with penalties for truckers and for companies. It's not working. Well, it's my understanding that that legislation is proposed legislation. It's actually not in place yet. Um, I think it's scheduled for March, but don't uh, you know that. I'm not sure of the date, but you're right. And so the one thing that I'll say is we're not alone in thinking that uh, these changes need to be made if the provincial government is already in a position where they're tabling that. Um, But it needs to go further. Um, If we switch to one of the things that that Mayor Harvey has announced is in his letter to uh, Minister Rob Fleming is... uh, different mitigation factors, other things that can be done 
to uh, help prevent the overpass strikes, such as uh, increasing the heights or putting some kind of warning systems in place that prevent the overheight vehicles from causing the damage. And we do have those warnings in place in some areas, but not all, obviously. Obviously, uh, but that, that's been around. The technology has been in use for years. Why is it not everywhere? And why are we not seeing this in this case? Well, I think that this here really underscores a need for it, doesn't it? And we can campaign to have those added. And that would be uh, asking the province to turn in and, and install these uh, mitigation factors. Put, put in the warning lights and the uh, overheight uh, identifiers. In the meantime, Delta Police uh, is one part of the enforcement effort, and I know that you also have uh, the RCMP involved, and you have combined traffic enforcement involved in this, and uh, inspectors for trucks. So you, there is a lot of enforcement. Is there going to be any other direction from Delta Police in terms of looking at some of these rigs before they hit the overpasses? I think that there's uh, a few things that can be done, and one of them is enforcement, uh, increasing our our abilities to educate. Uh, We are working with different uh, partners in the industry, such as the BC Trucking Association. Uh, Our commercial vehicle inspectors are engaged in the issues, and they do discuss it and, and share an education component when they're doing their inspections. And that's not just ours, but also the inspectors that are part of the the CVSE or the Commercial Vehicle Safety Enforcement Program as well. Well, it certainly sounds like there's action underway and there is a plan to combat this. I hear the frustration in your voice, but I think, you know, if everything comes to fruition and we see this as a learning moment, that's repeated often, but a learning moment, uh, there can be a solution. And thanks so much for your time with this. Thank you, Bruce, for the opportunity to share. Bruce Plaggett in for Jill Bennett on a Friday afternoon, last show of the year. And yeah, Happy New Year. It'll be great to see you again next year. How many times do you have to hear that one uh, for the next few days? But... If you take this time as one of those periods where you look back and think about how things were back, oh, maybe last year or years in the past, do you ever stop to think what it would be like to have the Vancouver Grizzlies back in Vancouver or an NBA franchise? You see, there is a new poll out from Research Co. and it finds most British Columbians would be happy with the return of professional basketball to Vancouver This more than two decades after we lost the Grizzlies. In fact, NBA Commissioner Adam Silver recently said that there is a possibility of adding new franchises to the league. By the way, Vancouver Grizzlies played in the NBA from 1995 to 2001. So, you know, uh, they weren't all that good. In fact, they were embarrassingly bad, I might say. But I still see a lot of swag around these days of people wearing that vintage Vancouver Grizzlies uh, clothing. And I love the uniforms. I love the look of them. And uh, I wonder, I wonder what that rebirth in some of the interest might happen to be. Well, let's bring in the pollster, Mario Canseco with Research Co. Talk a little bit about this survey and some of the findings Mario, great to have a chance to talk to you on this one. 
this is interesting, isn't it? The numbers are higher than, than I expected, Bruce. You know, we heard this commentary from Adam Silver, the NDBA commissioner. He mentioned Vancouver by name. He mentioned Montreal by name. There's a lot of speculation on the league adding new teams, and it's important for them to expand. Uh, there's also talk about maybe adding a team in Mexico, close to the border with Texas in Monterey. So I thought, why not? Let's ask BC residents how they feel about it. And there's 59% who say it would be a good idea to have a team in Vancouver. Uh, interest uh, in also becoming uh, somebody who can purchase season tickets or actually going to a home game. So even though it's been more than two decades since the Grizzlies left town, uh, there's still a lot of nostalgia and a lot of people who would like to see the NBA coming back. What's really interesting in this survey, I, I, I'm looking at the numbers and the breakdown you would think would be uh, very high in Vancouver, but even yeah. residents, people living in northern BC would like to see this. Tell me yes, about that. It- 63% of Northern BC residents say it's a good idea to have an NBA team in Vancouver, 62% in Metro Vancouver and the Fraser Valley, which, you know, allegedly would be the places where you can travel the easiest uh, to get to some of these home games. A little bit lower in Vancouver Island at 52% and in Southern BC at 50%. But what is really striking to me is uh, the level of support when we were asking about the Winter Olympics uh, just a couple of years ago was never as high as this. You know, it was usually 45 47%. 59 for an NBA franchise is huge. So, you know, ultimately, I think the, the, the main hindrance is this costs a lot of money. I mean, we, we're looking at about a, maybe a couple of billion dollars to just purchase the, fran- the, the franchise and keep it running. So that's the one thing that we're missing. But the survey tells us that there would be a pretty solid fan base if the NBA chose to return. Yeah, fan base indeed. And maybe that's uh, that's part of it. It's not going to be a cost that would be borne out by taxpayers, uh, per se, maybe when it comes to a stadium, but it would be a one-time only uh, uh, tax base type thing if if the, the proof was there that we actually needed that. Um, but uh, what else do you account for when you start to take a look at Northern BC, 63%, Southern BC, 50%. What's going on there? It's a little bit low. I mean, when you think about it, it's not an area uh, that is particularly happy with basketball in a way. There's also very few people in Southern BC who are fans of the NBA, so that seems to be part of it. Uh, what is quite interesting looking at some of the regional breakdowns is we don't really have that situation where you have a lot of people who are interested in something that is going to be very different from this. Uh, I think there's a, a lot of BC residents who remember actually going to some of the games from the Grizzlies, even if the team wasn't that great. And they had a lot of marketing problems, especially in the latter years. Uh, but the NBA is a very different ball game now. You know, it's, it's it's grown significantly worldwide. I think there's an interest from the current commissioners to take it to places where it's never been before. And what we've seen with some of the other leagues, you end up helping those areas and those regions that lost their teams. We saw it in in in, in Los Angeles, for instance, which which didn't have teams in the NFL just a few years ago, and now they have two. So if the ND if the NBA decides to follow the same pattern, uh, Vancouver should be high on the list if you're going to have new franchises. Well, talk about rose-colored glasses. I think one of the biggest <laughs> marketing problems with the Grizzlies, they sucked. They were terrible. <laughs> they were uh, next to the Detroit Pistons of today, one of the worst teams going. But, you know, you still, I guess you look back in retrospect, and it was kind of fun having a different sort of pro sports team in Vancouver 
and it wasn't the traditional ones you would think of. And we didn't go the route of having pro baseball in Vancouver. We went to the NBA. Wow, how cool is that? Well, straight to the NBA, and you you look at the differences uh, in what happened in Toronto and the development of the Raptors and what happened in Vancouver and the demise of the Grizzlies, and there's a couple of very important differences. One is having good trade picks. You know, we couldn't really build a team around around big country reefs, so that was part of the complexity in actually having good uh, a, a good team on the floor. But the, the other one is the, the Raptors were very careful in dealing with the multicultural aspect of Toronto. They knew that they could talk to people from all over the world, bring them into the games. We never saw the same type of efforts from the Grizzlies to try to bring in all of the multicultural communities in British Columbia to some of the games. And I think this is one of the reasons why the Raptors continued and the Grizzlies just faded away and had to be sold somewhere else. Ah, interesting. Uh, And you're quite right, especially now we're looking into the future uh, from or back then, uh, looking into the future, the demographics of Vancouver have changed a great deal. And we're looking at a city that is not necessarily the way it was back in, well, going back to 1995, let alone 2001. How do you reach a different demographic, a different makeup with something like this, uh, something like a new pro sports team uh, from a league which is primarily American? Well, one of the things that needs to be done is selling the experience. And I think we've seen a little bit of that, particularly when you study the experience of going to see the Whitecaps, for instance, uh, when the team started playing in the MLS and what it is now. You know, it's completely different. You have a lot of different options for drinks and for food. It's a completely different mentality from what they had four or five years ago. And I think part of the problem in the late 1990s is Uh, We were still selling the NBA team like it was an NHL team. You know, people will come. This is fun. It's important. If you don't do the engagement and try to find those people who are interested in your game, it's going to be very difficult to do something more meaningful. Now, the other issue that has changed dramatically is how many Canadians are playing in the NBA now. So you can actually build a team around Canadian content, which is something you couldn't do in the late 1990s. You know, going back to 1995, I remember being so excited about having an NBA team in Vancouver and talking with my aunt, who was in Phoenix at the time and a big fan of the Phoenix Suns. Of course, my aunt was quite a bit older, uh, well into her senior years, even back then. Do you think that a Vancouver Grizzlies would appeal to demographics in terms of ages, even on the higher end, older people? I think it would work well. You know, part of what we see is obviously the level of fanaticism towards the NBA is going to be higher with with your younger generations. You know, we have 77% of people age 55 and over who don't have a favorite NBA team. But the numbers when it comes to actually going to to the games are very good with with the 55 and overs. You know, 46% of them telling us it's a very good idea or a good idea to have this team here. And we have 24% who say they are at least uh, likely to go at least to one home to one home game per per year. So you do have that possibility of people looking into this and saying this is something that maybe I won't do all the time, but it would be fun to add to the entertainment experience of the city, even if you're driving from the Fraser Valley. Bruce Claggett in the chair this Friday afternoon. We've been talking about a possibility. Not that anyone is moving in this direction, but our feelings about a possibility of a return to professional basketball here in the city of Vancouver. 
Research Co. is out with a new poll, and it finds most of us in the province would be in favor of that. In fact, in Metro Vancouver, 62% would like it, 63% in northern B.C. Wow, we talked about that. And here is another number I've just polled out, and we'll talk with pollster Mario Canseco in just a moment about this one. But in the event an NBA team is ever established again in Vancouver, one in five British Columbians, 20%, say they would be very likely to attend at least one home game per year. Mario, is that good, that number? It's a good number. I mean, when you think about how many people sometimes come to Vancouver to watch either the Whitecaps or the Lions, uh, how many come by to see the Canucks once a year, it's almost like this kind of pilgrimage for some residents in in uh, areas that are far away from Vancouver. Uh, 20% is all right. I mean, it climbs to 24% in Metro Vancouver, 22% in the Fraser Valley. It could become something important in that sense. I mean, I wasn't expecting it to be closer to 50. Uh, But it's an important stat because ultimately what you need in order to create this fan base is uh, season ticket holders. And we have 5% of Metro Vancouver, as we say, they would very seriously purchase this and also people who are going to come in for the experience of the game. So it's one of the ways in which some of the NBA franchises have done remarkably better after moving into different venues. Uh, You look at the Brooklyn Nets, for instance, uh, who consistently get a lot of people showing up. When they played in New Jersey, they played in in an empty stadium. I also think that there is a difference between your casual fan, uh, somebody that may go to a game because it is a game, it's a destination, it's an event and some place to go, or they got tickets given to them. And then there are those fans who are die-hard, crazy, die-in-the-wool fans that go to every single, or listen to, at least to every single game, and wear the, uh, wear the, the clothing with it and have all the merch with it. How do you measure that? And are we ever going to see those Uber fans if we get a NBA franchise? The bar has been set incredibly high by Mr. Nab Batia in Toronto. <laughs> you know? right. He is the super fan of the Toronto Raptors. Um, he didn't miss a game from 1995 to 2021. Uh, he's actually in the Basketball Hall of Fame uh, because of how much of a fan he is. The only thing that broke his streak was COVID-19. But again, this tells you about the effort that the Raptors made. You know, they figured out that somebody was going to every game. He became part of the coverage. They gave him better seats and it helped sell the game to a multicultural uh, a, a people who maybe weren't really paying too, too close uh, uh, to what was happening as far as the NBA was concerned. So we could have a super fan in Vancouver for the Grizzlies, which just never found it. Toronto is really a sports city. And when I say that, I mean that they have a a huge following and it's a way of life when you talk about uh, whether it's uh, baseball, hockey or uh, even football. Is Vancouver ever going to be like that where you have these uh, fans that could get behind a team with the same amount of vigor that they do for, uh, say, the Blue Jays or or even uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs, dare I say? I think there's an opportunity for that. And part of the argument for me comes from figuring out how to get people into places, talking to those communities. You look at the success that the Whitecaps have had because they've known how to tackle the sport. They've known how to talk to people who maybe come from England or from Latin America who are interested in soccer and say, it's okay if you have your favorite team there, have your favorite team here, and we're going to make this an exclusive experience for you. 
Uh, I think that would go a long way in actually getting an NBA franchise to do sig significantly better than it did in the latter stages of the Grizzlies tenure here when they were playing in a stadium that was filled to maybe 25 or 30 percent capacity. What I find interesting is in high school sports, basketball in BC is huge. And there is that level of interest already out there. In fact, I would say there are more people playing basketball than any other uh, sport that's got a pro angle to it or a professional level to it in high school. Why do we not then have more basketball teams in Canada? Now, I think it's something that the NBA needs to seriously consider. Uh, I think they can look back at the experiment of the 1990s and go, it didn't pan out because of several circumstances. Similar to what happened in the NFL, it wasn't that Cleveland abandoned the Browns. The owner wasn't happy with the stadium and some of the things that were happening. Uh, similar situation in Baltimore, and they ended up getting the Ravens. So you can't really look at a city and think that nothing has changed. I think it's a completely different ballgame now in the city than it was 20 years ago when the Grizzlies left town. So if the NBA is intelligent about this and they want to expand to markets that are going to be more successful, instead of looking at the next available city with a gym, they should seriously look at Vancouver because the fan base is definitely here. Oh, well, and good words. It may be just pie in the sky, but there is some number, uh, some stats to back up. And this survey does it. The level of interest in having a pro basketball team once again in Vancouver. Mario, thanks for your time. My pleasure, Bruce. Anytime. Happy holiday weekend ahead. I'm Bruce Claggett, in for Jill Bennett. Well, Ecom is out with the annual list of the dumbest calls to 911. This for 2023, Ecom, of course, handling over 2 million calls every year. And it is very important to call when there is an actual emergency. But things like complaints about your hairdresser, well, that's a no no. Jessica Josich is a police call taker with Ecom. Jessica joins us now. Jessica, uh, let's dive into the naughty list. Calls that simply should not have happened over the past year. For sure. So first, first up, we have asking directions home from the Drake concert in Vancouver. So uh, that, uh, that definitely does not belong on our 911 line. Um, that is something that, I mean, Google Maps, normally helps me when I'm trying to get home. Um, we, I mean, you can always call uh, the city to see what they can do about it. Even non-emergencies, they'll be able to, to take the call, but unfortunately that just doesn't belong on 911. And, and if that uh, isn't second, bad enough, there, there's a traffic light one I see on this list. Yeah, yeah, the second one is uh, the traffic light was taking too long to turn green. Uh, so, I mean, I understand traffic can be frustrating for many individuals, uh, myself included. Um, we all we all get a little frustrated when we're waiting too long, but unfortunately, there's nothing that the police can do, and uh, and uh, nor ambulance or fire. So that's not necessarily a complaint for our emergency services. That's more of a, a city a city complaint um, with uh, with the light. Uh, third up was uh, an individual lost a nose ring down the shower drain. Uh, myself, I, I, have I laugh, a nose but ring. I shouldn't I, laugh. <laughs> yeah, it's and uh, I mean these. Yeah, so the nuisance calls that we are seeing, it's just unfortunately, you know, uh, a lot of the public they're not um, informed about what constitutes an emergency. 
Um, so, yeah, the nose ring down the shower drain. Airbnb host canceled the reservation wow. on them. Uh, so, yeah, that, that would definitely be a complaint for Airbnb. So, I know Jessica, that they have a wonderful... Yeah, yeah, of course it should go to Airbnb. But what do you do on your side... You're dealing with terrible emergencies and so many that can come in at once. It's a high-pressure job. Then you get one of these phone calls. How do you handle it as a call taker? Um, so as we do with every every call we receive, uh, most of us actually, take a, a little bit of a deep breath and we go, okay. And you start, you start by your process of asking your safety questions. You always want to assess what's going on and get to the true nature of events. Um, try to remain as unbi- uh, sorry, unbiased as possible. Um, so no personal beliefs or anything like that coming into play with uh, the call. And you want to understand how the caller is feeling in that moment in time as well, just because some uh, calls that you do receive are very sensitive. And so it's just pretty much going through the process of, okay, what's going on? What can we do about it? How fast can we respond? How fast can we react? And making sure that officers are safety, other uh, sorry, other emergency personnel are safety on scene, if it does constitute our uh, help, um, and also caller safety. Uh, we we just want to make sure that everyone in, in general is getting the help that they need. And if not, if it is a nuisance call, we will uh, we will inform the the public, uh, the individual who's called, uh, where they can take up those complaints or or those. Uh, those things that they're going through and experiencing. So, I mean, most of the time we do refer people to non-emergency, but uh, as soon as you reach the non-emergency line, they will they will be able to provide at least some uh, resources. Kudos to you. That takes a lot of discipline. And my first reaction <laughs> to some of these would be laughter. Or even worse, I would be outraged. Uh, one of the two reactions but you have to keep a level head and uh, still assess what's going on before you can even go to the next level. And that's time-consuming, exactly. isn't it? It is, it is. So, uh, I mean, we are trained individuals to handle uh, pressure, emergency situations, but we're also extremely trained on how to keep our own cool and how to uh, be very unbiased individuals in the sense of it's a judgment-free zone. We're not going to get mad at any caller. Um, you know, you might hear uh, somebody that uh, if you call into 911 and they might elevate their voice in a way just to grab a caller's attention. However, they're not yelling uh, directed anger or anything at the caller. It's more so just so we can control a call. Um, but regardless of that, uh, we, we definitely have to breathe and, and find our own uh, happiness as well outside of work. But we have a great team that provides great support to us. And I mean, most individuals that work here, they feel um, the, that uh, gratification. Great team indeed. And this is a real skill. Yeah. And when I say that, mm-hmm. let's look at the rest of the list uh, that made the top 10. Number six, uh, the burger joint. Yeah, burger joint wouldn't let them in before opening. So uh, yeah, it, it was uh, a caller was upset um, that uh I don't know which burger joint, but uh, burger joint wouldn't let them in before they open their doors. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I personally have never dealt with that, um, but that's that's more or less for the company that um, 
at least besides the hours of operation. Not a 911 um, call? No. No, definitely not a 911 call. It's, uh, I mean, we, we will, if, if somebody does decide to make that call into us, we will let them know. You can call the non-emergency line if you would like to report. Um, however, the non-emergency line at that point would go through the process of, you know, their safety questions and, and seeing what they could do or provide. And then uh, resources would be um, offered to whoever's called this in. Um, but uh, unfortunately, this is not a 911 call. This is uh, this is definitely a uh, either Better Business Bureau or that personal business itself with their customer service. And the remaining ones on the list here, we've got uh, they couldn't find their cell phone, a complaint mm-hmm. about a pothole, and oh yeah, two mm-hmm. more, two more. I love these. Yeah. yeah, their McDonald's order was taking too long. And a barber gave them a bad haircut. Yeah, the barber um, gave so, them a bad haircut, 911. Uh, no, but uh, we can understand the outrage in that, but 911, no. All this is put out every year, and the stories continue. I've been doing this type of interview for year after year after year, and I still am just dumbfounded by the calls that come in. But there are tips and advice for people when it comes to 911. Let's talk about that. Yeah, so uh, what we want to educate people on is 911 is for police, fire, or medical emergencies when immediate action is required. So someone's health, safety, property, they're in jeopardy, or a crime is in progress. Um, And the tips with calling 911 is know your location at all times. We all see the movies out there and we all see the TV shows showing that dispatchers and call takers are able to pinpoint exactly where an individual is located. However, I wish that were a reality. We do not have the technology to do Ah, that. Good advice. So uh, give a location. Very important. Mm -hmm. It's very important to at least even have an understanding of what city you're in currently. Uh, We understand People do often get lost, and it is very hard, especially when you're going through an emergency. That's the last thing you're going to be thinking about. But we just really hope that people are able to know where they are. Um, and then another tip that we have is please don't program your, your phone with 911. So don't program 911 into any device. Uh, it's possible that, you know, Siri could even bring up 911 if you say a number similar to it. No, I have to admit, exactly, and I've had uh, a situation like that. I've also had uh, an accidental call to 911 in the past. What happens? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it, it definitely does, and we don't want to we don't want to belittle or make fun of the individuals that do accidentally call into 911. It's very common. Most of us on the floor here have accidentally dialed through, but our biggest advice and what we would really love people to do is to just stay on the line. Stay on the line with us. We are people as well. We understand accidents do happen. We just stay on the line. Let us assess your safety and we'll ask our questions. And then we'll let you enjoy your day. So just stay on the line and let us know it's an accident. And we understand it. Accidents do happen. 911 is strictly for emergencies and in-progress crimes only. Um, And unfortunately as well, when individuals do call into us and they want the non-emergency or other services, we actually can't transfer uh, callers over to non-emergency or any uh. of those services directly from 911. So if you do reach a 911 call taker, 
they're only able to transfer you over to emergency police, fire, or ambulance. Uh, so we only have three services that we can really transfer an individual over to. So if you're calling for non-emerge, you'll have to actually uh, either look up that, uh, that exact number or you can dial um, your city number, any bylaw number. They'll be able to also provide you with that uh, resource. And uh, Not on the list, but I'm kind of curious about if you do have a call that's like a marine emergency, can you call 911 <laughs> if you don't know what the system is for getting uh, resources that are marine resources? Definitely, definitely. Uh, so if you have anything to do with marine, if you are lost, we, we do uh, take those calls. We have Coast Guard. Uh, our, our Coast Guard um, for, for BC is fantastic. Um, and we, we work alongside with those individuals uh, to make sure that we can pinpoint if you're lost out at sea. Um, and then also within our province of British Columbia, um, we, depending on freshwater or saltwater or anything like that as well, because there are little policies that we have, but uh, we'll, we'll be able to at least direct the caller in the correct, uh, appropriate manner. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.